Slowly but surely, we're making our way through the book of 1 Samuel this summer, looking specifically at the character of King Saul, and we're doing kind of a character study then as we do this. Uh, This will keep going on until September 10th is the end of the series, but you have a little break that I think is going to be very fun on August 20th. Uh, I'm going to hand the pulpit over to our own Stephen LeBoy. He's leaving us in January uh, for the Peace Corps, but one of the things that I think we as a congregation have done exceptionally well is raise leaders. I mean, I hope I'm an example of that and and others that we've had along the years. Uh, You can contest that with me later. If you don't think so, that's fine. But, but one thing that I think is a, a gift that we can give someone like Stefan is uh, the gift of leadership. And one of the things that we had talked about was he'd like to bring the word some Sunday and be trained in that. So I, I think it's going to be fun on August 20th. And we won't make him nervous, will we? It'll be fun for him. So uh, he's going to give us a little break from this. I think you'll really enjoy it. But we're in 1 Samuel still. We're going through this. And, and let me just remind us of a couple of details that I think are useful. One, this is uh, the transitional moment from the days of the judges uh, to uh, a king in Israel. The transition that's going on is that in, in the days of the judges, that book called Judges in the Old Testament ends by saying, in those days there was no king and everybody did as they saw fit. It was a time of lawlessness in so many ways. The judges were supposed to bring people back and and hopefully keep them on track in obedience with God. And yet the people would stray away. God would raise a judge. They'd be rescued uh, from their disobedience and the consequences of that disobedience. So it's a day of no king. And then, of course, they get a king. And we see these different characters in the book of 1 Samuel. And we're drawn in. We're supposed to be drawn in to these characters, like Hannah, who's faithful from the start. And we should look at someone like Hannah and say, am I that way? Do do I have such a spirit of thanks that Hannah does and a spirit of generosity that Hannah does? We're drawn into these characters. Samuel, he's raised up as essentially the last judge, given to that task, and a prophet and a priest on top of that. And we can look at someone like Samuel, who's faithful in this time of disobedience. And then Saul gets elevated in amongst this, but he's really part of the problem, not the solution. The disobedience abounds in the people, and Saul is not able to fix it. In fact, it kind of pulls him down. His own disobedience and rejection uh, from kingship occurs because of that disobedience. And where we we end up today in the storyline is that Saul is angry. And, and, and there's more to it than that, but we're just going to start there with the whole issue of anger. And this is not a sermon entirely on anger, by the way. Uh, this has a lot more to do with contentment when you get down to it. But let's start with anger. And Saul is angry from the beginning. And, and I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, and now I have kids, sometimes kids have temper tantrums, right? Or something is supposed to be one way. I wanted a blue plate, but I got a purple plate at dinner. Even though the food is on it, it tastes exactly the same, but they're upset about these little things. And it's cute when they're kids, right? Maybe frustrates us a little bit, but it's cute. It's cute when we were a kid that we could have a tantrum, You know, you can even go to the store and see somebody else uh, and their kid is having a tantrum and and you can at least walk away thinking, well, at least it's not my kid, right? It's not that bad. And there are kids that are learning the rules of the game of life, basically, right? But it's not cute when you get older, right? It's not cute when you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 to have a tantrum and to get angry like that. Saul begins as a humble man. 
But because of pride, he gets humbled later in life. Because of his disobedience, he's no longer humble, he's humbled. Because of the consequences of his decision, he had such great promise of what could be, of the possibility that could take place in such a messed up world that he's living in. What happened to him? What happened along the way to this guy? Really, when you get down to it, Saul's start was God. He was trying to be faithful to some degree. He was humble from the beginning. He didn't even want the job. But his end was pride. And his problem in the midst of that that led to that was disobedience. He was not obedient in the process. And that gets flagged over and over and over again in his story. And so today we're going to see one moment, one dark moment moment in his story. And we'll get to that here in a second. It's going to be in 1 Samuel 20, if you're following along. And I'm going to bring up another passage before that. But 1 Samuel 20 is the dark moment we're going to see. And it's these small steps away from God that Saul consistently takes that cause him trouble. He continually steps away in disobedience. And that forms in him some habits, and eventually he faces the consequences. Now, in the New Testament, the passage we heard today from Colossians 3 is a great instruction in full continuity with with the whole testimony of Scripture that Paul gives to the church in Colossians 3 of some things that we need to get rid of, put to death, he in fact says, that are things that pull us away from God, just like Saul was pulled away from God. And I want to start there to ground us this morning Talk about Saul, and then we'll, we'll come back to those at the very end. But in, in Colossians 3, verses 5, 6, and we'll do 8, uh, it says, got to get to Colossians there. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Go to verse 8. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. These are problems because they draw us away from God. They're problems because they're acts of disobedience against God. They tend to pour into ourselves and create a toxic environment rather than a God-fearing, God-loving people-loving environment within us. Put to death, Paul says. Don't just push them to the side. Don't just stick them in a closet with all the other junk. Put them to death, Paul says, because these will cause us problems. I served as a hospital chaplain for a short while. Technically, I was a student when I did that for about six months. And I remember sitting in a class with fellow students, and uh, the supervisor turned to me. And I'm not a psychological person. I mean, I get it on the job, but I've never done a lot of formal study of it because it really didn't interest me when I was uh, in those days. Now I'm more interested in it than ever. But, but I remember the, the supervisor looking at me, and she says, we're talking about anger. And she says, Evan, what's the function of anger? And that's the kind of question that just short-circuits my brain for some reason. I didn't know the answer to what's the function of anger. But I've come to learn that that one of the things about anger, since we're starting there, is that anger, most of what we call anger, tends to not be anger. We usually use it to hide other things. Uh, Anger, usually, in its basic form, is somebody threatens you physically. They cut you off in traffic or something like that. You get, oh, I'm upset. That's anger, usually. But, but for the most part, we use it to hide things like men, especially hide sadness. 
as anger or something like that. We, we hide behind it. Anger has a function as sort of a defense. That's what it's doing, and otherwise we, we tend to hide things. But, but anger in its real form, what it actually does to us is not good. And part of the reason that, that Paul in Colossians would talk about this is because anger by its very nature is not sinful. It's not a sin to be angry. But God can be angry, and righteously so, because God doesn't bring with him baggage. And everything that's happened to him in life that then informs that anger in a, in a wrong or misinformed way. Whereas you and I, we can be angry, but the period at which that anger is sort of pure and steps over the line into sin is very narrow, very short, and for most of us, hard to discern when it moves over into sinful territory, the reaction that we have from that. That's why Paul says, put it to death, get it out of here. And what's interesting is it has an effect on us. And I found this quote this week from Frederick Beekner, who talks about anger. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Did you hear that? Fun. To lick your wounds to smack your lips regarding grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. It has a pretty profound effect on us if we let it stew and fester. And you can see that Saul has gotten to this point in his life where anger, among many other things, have gotten the best of him. And so we read in 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 through 34, it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. Jonathan is his son. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Some translations, it gets even a little more colorful than that. But let's just stop for a moment. He's yelling at his son in anger, and he brings in his wife as a weapon in the cause. He offends both his son and his wife in that same breath. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, David, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. Okay, so he weaponized her now uh, completely. So he used her, he offended his own wife, and then he says, and it's, it's to her shame and mine that you're doing this, Jonathan. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to die, or to me, for he must die. This is an angry man at this point. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at, at, at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. That's a pretty good sign, I would say, by that point. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the feast. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. How did we get to this point in Saul's life? A man who started humble, anointed by God, and now he's attempting to kill even his own son 
insulting his own wife in the process, wants to kill David so much as jealousy and anger and rage and frankly, uh, a whole number of other things gotten the best of him. Saul is responding, certainly, to things in his own life. And he's responding, let's just point out, poorly. And he's responding poorly to his own disobedience. This is really of his own making that he's responding to so poorly. And like so many kings of the ancient world, he got paranoid that somebody was trying to take his power. It's already been taken from him, let's point out. He's angry. He's got all this going on. And and from the beginning, when he was an anointed king, God's spirit was put on him. He prophesied in the beginning, and he was given a lot of grace and a lot of opportunity to succeed. And he kept sinning. He kept stepping away. But he got these graceful moments where through Samuel, God would say, hey, obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul was sort of living by the idea that it's better to apologize than ask permission. So he'd do something wrong. He'd take his own course, even when he's instructed by God to do otherwise. And he would sacrifice at the end. He would apologize. Essentially, instead of trying to live life for God, he was trying to do a deathbed conversion. That's what he was trying to do. I can just apologize for all the wrong I want to do at the end of, of, of all of this. And God will just be okay with it. And God finally says, enough. If that's the way you want to go, Saul, then thy will be done. I lift my spirit off of you. Someone else is chosen. I'm going to let you live out the consequences of your constant decision to do your own thing. And when that happens, when God lifts his spirit off him and his hand is essentially withheld from Saul's presence, Saul now is tormented by an evil spirit. And he's got a problem on his hands. And so what does he do? He gets desperate at this point. He, he doesn't want the kingship to be taken from him. He's very concerned about this. He tries to kill David who's been anointed for this purpose, because David has now risen up through the ranks as somebody who is a threat to his kingship. He tries to kill David. He tries to entrap David by having, by when David is interested in marrying Saul's daughter. And you can read about that story if you want. It's very interesting. We'll say it that way. Saul tries to kill David again. And then he takes a shot at his own son. I mean, this is a man that's kind of gone off at this point. Things are not right. He has moved from being spiritually dry with God to spiritually distant, now to being spiritually dark. What a transition has gone on in his life. And, and what's happened is that in the beginning, he sort of dabbled in the world of pride, in focusing attention on himself. But now, by this point in his life, he's delighting in self, not dabbling anymore. He's angry, he's paranoid, envy and jealousy have come along for the ride. He's very concerned about anything that would threaten who he is and what he can get. And we talked about this last week in the, in the problem of pride for Saul. Uh, pride was his, his precipitating issue here when you get down to the, the bottom line of it. C.S. Lewis points out that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. Right? It's, its only concern is winning at this point. 
and being better than anyone else, still keeping that power. That pride, as we defined it last week, is essentially taking praise and blessing that's, to, that's for God, in this case, and heaping it on himself. And jealousy, like I said, come, comes along with that, which means that he's got this intense interest, this obsession with honor and prosperity of somebody else. He wants that. He, he can't live without what somebody else has. And how he got here was just step by step walking in disobedience, step by step, stepping away slowly from God. And then one day, all of a sudden, you wake up and you realize you're a different person. I I, I remember following baseball in the 90s and a bit into the early 2000s, but mostly in the 90s. And I I remember seeing the likes of Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire. Do you remember watching the progression of some of these guys as they went from normal-looking guy to Popeye physique, I mean, muscles just bulging out because, of course, they were enhancing their workouts to do this. You know, and you look at them over time. I remember seeing Mark McGuire in the last World Series that I think he was in, and, and I, I thought, I remember, you know, seeing, like, his rookie card, and he was a, you know, muscular but smaller guy, and all of a sudden now he's huge. Like, what changed in the man? Did he get a haircut? What's the difference? It's the, you know, it's the drugs that he was taking in order to get those muscles, It's a step-by-step process, but all of a sudden you look back and you're like, something has changed here. Something's different. And we can get that way when we start to get uh, uh, in these modes like Saul was. He was envious and jealous of things that other people had. He coveted. He wanted things that were out uh, of his reach, and those came to drive who he was. And so when we talked about being little kids and having temper tantrums, we can do this as little kids. Why does that kid have a better toy than I do? And as we grow up, we, we sometimes don't grow out of that enough. And so we think, why does that person have more money than I do? Or why does that person have more stuff? Or why do they have better clothes or better hair or better skin? Or why are they more beautiful than I am? Or why do they have a better house or better vacations? Or whatever it is, we start to to compare and get jealous and envious of what other people have. And when we start to let those things in too deeply, guess what? They eat at us. They get in there and they start gnawing away and eat us alive. Saul took these steps away from God. And in the process, his end was self. He was prideful. His problem was obedience. He didn't obey. He continuously disobeyed. And the question for us then, as we look at Saul, and, and let us not let ourselves off the hook and say, well, that could never happen to me. It does happen to us. We do get eaten by some of these things, uh, and, and we do fall into the trap of things like envy and jealousy, and we're not content sometimes with what we have, with what God has given us. And when that happens, we take these small steps away from God. And the question becomes, how do we take steps towards God when those things try to eat at us? The two things I think is, and and we're looking at Saul's story by this point, not just this one moment of focus, but Saul's story. Two things that I think pop out from this uh, that Saul lacks that we ought to have. One is that we need to make praise a habit. Saul didn't. Praise of self was a habit. Praise of God was not. If you look way back at the beginning of the book of Samuel, we commented on Hannah. Uh, Her story is a remarkable one in that in this world of disobedience, Hannah goes and prays and prays and prays for a child. And when she finally gets the child, Samuel, she dedicates him to the Lord. 
And when she dedicates him to the Lord, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel is her singing a song of praise to God, recognizing Israel's history and the part that she has in it and what Samuel will do within that history. She hands him over and she's grateful. She praises God for the gift. She doesn't say, oh, it's mine now. You delivered and now I just get to keep him and do whatever I want with him. And, and that's enough, God. You gave me the blessing. No, she praises God. God. Contrast that with Saul, where we saw last week when he's called by God to go in and take on the Amalekites, not take any plunder along the way. What does he do? He takes plunder for himself. He can't resist taking in the plunder for his, himself and his men. There's not a gratefulness about that, although he tries to pass it off that way. Oh, yeah, we were going to sacrifice that later to God anyways. I mean, that's like somebody coming in to rob your home and saying, well, we were going to give it to a charity anyways, right? It, It's not the same thing. He's disobedient. Make praise a habit in your life. Because praise given to God reveals God's rightful place in the world. And if I might point out, it doesn't just reveal God's rightful place in the world. It reveals God's rightful place in your world. In your life. Around our home, we quote uh, Pastor Craig Groeschel quite a lot, actually, when we're feeling discontent about something. Don't let what you want rob you of what you have. It's a good line, isn't it? Don't let what you want rob you of what you have. Saul has power. He has authority. He has God's spirit. He has victory over his enemies. He has family. He is discontent. Isn't that fascinating? Even when his son, Jonathan, has a victory, what does he do? Takes the praise himself for Jonathan's victory. And we saw this morning in in 1 Samuel 18, when after Goliath is beaten by little David the shepherd boy, Saul can't stand that David would get any credit, more than he does, for his victory. Saul, who was commanding an army who was fearful of the Philistines, especially the giant Goliath, nobody would go in after him. The little shepherd boy goes in, and and they all think he's going to fail, and he conquers, and Saul can't handle it. Saul can't when they're walking through the towns. Uh, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Why does David get more honor than I do? I'm the king. He's probably going to become the king now. Saul gets jealous, and he lets it eat at him. Just like he lets everything like that eat away at him because he's looking for praise for himself. He's not passing it on. And we live in a period of time, it's not unique in history, but we live in a period of time that's constantly preaching at us that we should be discontent with what we have, always looking for more, don't we? I mean, I go to to the grocery store and I stand in the checkout aisle and while I look mostly at the candy because that's what I like, You can't help but miss the magazines, right? Who are constantly preaching at you that something's wrong, that your abs aren't sexy enough, that your summer body isn't ready, that something isn't there, isn't right, and you need to shift. You need to do something, whatever the magazine tells you, to make it right. You should be discontent until that happens. The message, what you have is not good enough. We live in a culture that, and this was a new term to me recently, is a FOMO culture. Fear of missing out, right? Anybody face this? We don't want to, and, and it's amplified by our social media culture that we see only the best that people present to us on social media. And we see what they did or the reaction that they have or the great experience that they had or somebody that they met or the vacation that they took. 
And we take that in that what we have is not good enough. The message we receive is the, is the life I'm living isn't as good as the life they're living. I need to make some changes to live a better life. And we get jealous, envious, covetous, greedy sometimes, discontent in the process of that. And, and it diminishes what God has given us in this life. So that we start to think all the good I have in life is a total fail compared to what they have. But that's not the truth. That's not the truth because God has given us, God has blessed us in this life, whether we recognize it or not. And we need to return the praise and thanks to God. That takes the focus away from us and puts it in the rightful place. So when you feel envious or jealous or discontent, angry, even when you feel anxious, here's what we can do. Stop. And literally, put your hands in front of you and hand it over. Give it over to God. Say, God, I am feeling jealous because of X. I covet what that person has. Please take that from me. God, I thank you. Let's, let's take an example. At the grocery store, let, we'll use our two examples we just used. At the grocery store, you see that the magazines tell you that you, what there is to offer is not what you have. You feel less about what you have. God, I hand it over to you. Okay, so I don't have the summer body that I'm supposed to have. I hand it over to you. I'm envious of this. God, thank you that I'm in the grocery store where I can buy this food. Where you have provided food in my pantry, where I have a car that got me here, or some way to get here, where I have fuel in the car, where I have people who supported me to get me here, whatever it is that got you there, God, thank you for these things. We see things in the social media world that diminish uh, our, our own stuff when we think, oh, God, my life is just not the same as them. We hand it over. God, thank you that you've, I praise you that you've given us the, the ability to fellowship with one another and that you've given us social connections, that I have friends. God, I thank you that I have this phone or this computer or the phone contract by which I can be connected with these people, the home that I live in by which I can sit and do this, the chair that I'm sitting in. God, I thank you for these things. It starts to take the focus away from us. Woe is me to God, thank you. I praise you for all that you've done in my life. It puts God in priority to the things around us. That's how we stay on the track of obedience. I'd rather feel undeserving because of God's goodness to me than deprived of what I think I deserve. Because there's not a whole lot we actually deserve in life when you get down to it. We think we deserve a lot. There's not a lot that we deserve. Let's get there in a moment. The second thing I would say is this. Give something generously in life. Give things away. Be generous. That's what Saul is not. Saul continuously withholds. He continuously draws things to himself to keep things for himself. He withholds what God has, let's just point out, freely given to him. He didn't earn it. He didn't earn the kingship. He didn't earn the ability to have a dynasty. He didn't earn the wealth that he gets for being a king. Those were given to him by God. He didn't even earn life. None of us did. Let's just point that out this morning. At God's pleasure, he gave us life. Thanks be to God. And we exist and can draw breath today because God gave us the gift of life. If we talk about what we deserve, it's death, not life, because of our disobedience. And God has even made allowances for that. If we'll say yes to Jesus. 
We need to develop in ourselves a sense of generosity because we have one who's been profoundly generous to us in God. In our family, we were given a gift fairly recently. We were given a lot of gifts. Thanks, by the way, to those of you that were involved in some of the biggest, most recent gifts. We are deeply grateful and blessed. We were given a gift, though, uh, recently. Um, It was a nice gift, Um, but it was something we didn't need right now. We might need later. Somebody else needed that gift. We said, without even thinking, well, they should take it then. Handed it off. We were given uh, a a check just recently uh, that we said, you know, that'd be nice to use somewhere. But actually, we want to donate that. That would be better used elsewhere. We We didn't plan on it. We didn't need it. Let's give it away. Now, I don't say that because uh, I want to pat myself on the back or have you pat me on the back. I'm saying that because I preach generosity from time to time, and we practice what we preach. But it took a lot of work. We were not, Stephanie and I were not always good givers. Uh, When we first got married, we, we were generous, but we were not really good about that. And we've changed. It's taken us a lot of intentionality and step by step. We got there, and now we've developed that as part of who we are. And to think of giving up and not being generous, it's a part of our personality now. It becomes a part of you. Because we push those things away, we give away rather than just take in. And I've discovered that in giving, we bring glory to the giver. In withholding, we bring glory to self. Do you see the difference? We give glory to the giver, the one who freely gives to us rather than self. When we generously give away. So we give away both praise, we give away things, uh, and, and, and for some people it's easy to give away money, it's hard to give time. For others it's the opposite. For some it's hard to give uh, some of their self, or wisdom, or service. But let's just recognize that all those things are freely given by God. The stuff that we have belongs to God, the time that we have is God's time, not our time. The gifts that we have are God's gifts given to us, not ours to keep to ourselves. And so we need to develop that generosity because God has been generous to us. Final thought here. We're talking about Saul and we started with anger. So let's just start with that as our our question here. If anger has the power to, to destroy me over time, what will generosity do to me? That's an interesting question. What would generosity develop in me? If, if anger or envy or jealousy or discontentment, those things that we've talked about, if that has a toxic effect in our lives, what kind of effect does generosity have in our lives? The opposite of that. I've discovered that when I hold on to less in life, I am more content and more free. And I find it easier to be grateful to God when I don't hold on to those things. When I give up things like anger, envy, even anxiety, I am more able to be obedient to God. And the reason is that those things like anger and envy and and malice, the things that we read about in Colossians, they're obedience blockers. They put the focus on ourselves instead of on God, the one we're supposed to obey and follow. And we're instructed, as we read at the beginning of the sermon, to put those things to death in our lives. When we let them in, we end up walking Saul's path, which is disobedience and dishonor. So Paul rounds out, when we're back to Colossians, Paul rounds out in verses 
12 and 17. The whole section is good, but I'll just leave you with those. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are outward things. They're not inward things. They're things we're given away to other people. Clothe yourselves with those things. And verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May we be generous with one another. May we be generous with those around us who we don't think deserve our generosity. But let's point out, we didn't deserve it either. May we be generous in our praise of God, in the gifts that God has given us, in our thanksgiving. May we be obedient. Let's pray. Father, may we walk the path that you've laid before us. It is narrow. It is possible. It is possible only by the power of your spirit working in and through us. We can get a glimpse of humility and kindness and patience and gentleness and compassion in this life without you, but we'll never live those fully without you. We will always, our inclination will be to turn inward and be prideful and be stuck on ourselves and given to death rather than life without you. Father, may we make the conscious choice today, step by step, intentionally, to choose life. To choose life eternal that we only get through your Son, Jesus Christ. That we didn't earn, that you freely gave. God, for those of us that have not chosen that, may this morning be a new day. For those of us that have little parts of ourselves that, that we just don't want to give up, the, 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 the taste and desire and the fun of anger or jealousy or envy, or just wanting a crisis in our life that we can feel good about ourselves when we really don't feel good about ourselves, that, that those things, we'd hand over those to you. And we'd realize that the true value that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from those things that look so enticing at the beginning, but destroy us over time. God, may we hand ourselves over to you today, step by step, intentionally being generous and praising you all the way. Pray this in your name. Amen.